Anyways, um, I'm thankful you guys are here tonight. Uh, Taking your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 9. Uh, dealing with a very important uh, topic tonight as we're going through the different parts of these uh, wisdom books here that God has given to us. All of us would say tonight, we either one, think we're wise, which means we're probably not, or two, we know that we need wisdom, and the best place to get wisdom, and truly the only place to get wisdom is from God and from His Word. And so uh, that's what we're trying to do. Um, none of us are, are uh, wise enough to where we don't need the wisdom of God or the wisdom books of God. And so we want to return back to some of these basic truths that the Lord has given to us so that we would live wise lives for His name's sake, for His glory's sake, as well as for our sake, uh, so that we would live lives that would be worthy of Him and that we would uh, live lives that would um, certainly be pleasing to Him, but as well that uh, there is much blessing uh, and living wisely in the eyes of God. But uh, I want to read tonight verses 7 through 9, and uh, then we'll pray and uh, ask the Lord to help us tonight. Now, verse number 7 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, and chains about thy neck. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this tonight, God. Thank you for this day of worship that we've gotten to have. And Lord, for the, the many blessings that you've given to us, God. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we gather now and we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts to it. Lord, help us all to approach it humbly. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, see your word and to hear the instruction of it, Lord, and that we would, by faith, grab a hold of the truth and, and obey it and apply it to our lives faithfully. I pray, God, that you would help each one tonight. And Lord, that as we prepare our hearts for this upcoming week, God, that you would use us uh, as you see fit in a mighty way throughout our day-to-day life. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, verse number seven here, of course, is uh, quoted a lot. It's gone back to a lot, and, and rightly so. Really what we find here, verse seven, the beginning of knowledge, this verse here, verse number seven, is establishing the theological foundation of the book of Proverbs, and in some ways the foundation of the life of a believer that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And we're going to talk about that tonight. Long before we grow up to be good Christians or before we become leaders in a church or anything else, it comes back to this root that springs up. That is the fear of the Lord. It is truly the beginning, the foundation of not just your salvation, but your daily walk with Christ. And certainly leads us onward to glory. But I want to begin here with this phrase, beginning. Uh, this really is the foundation. It is the beginning of everything. It is the, the, the bedrock of our Christian life. It is the bedrock of the rest of the book of Proverbs to know the fear of the Lord. And the whole idea of the wisdom literature is that we would have knowledge, we would have wisdom, which is applying this knowledge to our lives. But the beginning of knowledge here, the beginning here. Uh, Kidner writes, the beginning, which means the first and controlling principle, rather than a stage which one leaves behind, is not merely a right method of thought, but of right relation. This is the idea here that we're not just trying to get some sort of uh, right thought about God or right thought about how we should live our life, but rather this is the very fundamental truth of how we view God and who He is. You know, because if we miss up just by a, a fraction uh, or by that much about who God is, we will miss everything else by a mile. And so we've got to get this basic truth right. As one commentator also writes, the fundamental fact then is that in all knowledge, all understanding of life, 
All interpretation thereof, the fear of Jehovah is the principal thing, the chief part, the central light, a part from which the mind of man gropes in darkness and misses the way. Having a knowledge of God is, of who God is, it is truly the foundation of all things. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is the start, but as well, the idea is not just a place that we leave from, because if you've been saved for 30, 40 years, do you stop having a fear of the Lord? No. If anything, I would say that you probably have a more of an increased awareness of it. You have more of an increased understanding about who God is. The longer that we know God, the more that we have a proper fear and understanding of who he is. Now, I'm going to address what it means to have this fear of the Lord phrase in a moment. But we have to understand that our foundation is right here. It is our foundation for for truly everything. If you did not have a fear of God, would you get saved? Probably not. Matter of fact, many people say that they got saved because they were scared to go to hell. But I think the real the real key is less that we're afraid to go to hell and we're more afraid of the God who we're going to stand before. And I believe rightly so, because there are those today who would say, um, hey, you know, I'm not worried. You know, man can judge me. Only God can judge me. I'm not worried about anything. Right. If, if only God can judge me, then I should have a fear of that, shouldn't I? Because he's holy and I'm not. He's righteous. I'm unrighteous. Therefore, it should make us quake in our boots a little bit to think that we're going to stand before him. Now, to you and I in Christ, we look and long forward to that day. But to those who don't know Jesus, to die, I mean, everything in their whole world is right here. They're not longing, looking forward to anything else because to them, there is nothing else. Or they're just hoping on. They're much like this commentator wrote there, like groping in the darkness trying to find their way, and they're not going to find anything except darkness and more darkness. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 tells us this in verse 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. The first portion of that little verse there in verse number 13 of Ecclesiastes 12, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. As this author is writing this, he says, let's sum up this whole thing we've been talking about. And he says, fear God, keep his commandments. Now, that right there is a sermon in and of itself. You won't keep God's commandments if you don't fear God. Now, let's look back and let's make this a little bit simple for us to kind of put it in mind. How many of you guys had good parents? Okay, all right, not as good as mine, right? <laughs> if they're watching, right, thanks mom and dad, right? <laughs> right, think about this though. Uh, what would you consider a good parent? One who loves their children? Yes. One who sacrifices for their kids? One who wants the best for the kids? All right, one who never disciplines their kids? No, right? Grandparents might be different, but when you're the parent, it's, it's, you've got to discipline, don't you? You've got to. Matter of fact, you and I, when we are in the grocery store, we're at Walmart or somewhere, and we see that kid who's throwing that temper tantrum in the aisle because they want the piece of candy, we, we normally don't get upset at the kid. Who do we normally get upset at or should get upset? Mom and dad, right? Because there's no discipline. There's no order. And for that child, we go, and they just don't listen. Why? Because there's no natural fear. You go, well, you shouldn't be afraid of your mom or your dad. Well, I can tell you this. I, I love my dad very much. 
But I also feared my dad very much. Now, he's got a bum leg and stuff now, so I'm not quite as scared. But I can probably outwalk him maybe a little bit. But, but you think there was this sort of understanding of knowing it was one thing when mama whooped you. And there's another thing when she said, now wait till your dad comes home, right? Yeah. My, my last whooping happened at 16 years old. 16. And I was like this big already still. I haven't grown since I was like 15. Um, I came out this way. I don't know. <laughs> but but I've, always, I've always big. My mom, at 16, my last spanking, I remember, I mean, was just wailing. On me. I'm, not in an abusive way, but, I mean, I'm a big old boy I'm at 16. You know? She's trying to make sure I, I got the point across here. It's not doing no good. I, I start laughing, makes it worse. I laugh harder. <laughs> she whoops harder. And then she said, you know what, I've had enough. And then she looks at my dad, and she said, AJ, but she says, not the initial, she says his full lengthy name, all right? And so now he's in trouble. I'm going, he's going to get a whooping too. But, and, and she looks at him, she goes, your turn. And I'm like, she's bluffing, she's bluffing. And he goes, come here, boy. And I went, ooh, all right. So now I'm taking this long walk around a, a queen-size bed to get to his side where I'm, I know this is about to be, about to be rough. I walk to that side and I look at him and he goes, all right, you ready? And I'm like, not, re- not really. Uh, there's, no, there's no real getting ready for this anymore. Uh, I, you know, I done had the appetizer. Now I guess I'm getting ready for the encore or the, the, the main course here. I'm going to get the main course and dessert here. One, one fell swoop. And he looks, he goes, all right. And I go, okay. And he goes, stop it. <laughs> Just like that. Just to get a rise out of my mom, of course, mom got upset. Then Matt, you know, dad and I both got whoopings. And, and then that was, a, that was the end of it. That was the last one. It was the last straw. It's all I needed. I learned my lesson there. But we think about this, though. There was, I was much more afraid walking around that bed to get to my dad. But I still knew that dad loved me, and I knew that I still loved my dad. But it was the idea of going, got some fear here. It's a proper fear, a, a, a respectful fear, a knowledge that what I'm about to get, number one, I, I deserve Two, it's going to be worse than what I just got, and I probably deserve more than that. Now, I tell you all that embarrassing story for a reason. One, to let you know I did get whooped, and, and, and I turned out fine. <laughs> or two, I probably should have got more, and I would have turned out better. I don't know. But I tell you that for us to understand a little bit about this. As the writer in Ecclesiastes and here in Proverbs tells us that when we base our faithful walk, it begins with, fearing God and keeping His commandments. We could boil down even your Christian walk with that. Unless you know God, you will not follow His commands. And on the other side of that, the same is true. You won't follow His commands unless you know God. And to know God means that there's going to be a fear of God. And we're going to get into the details of that because I know some go, well, I'm not afraid of God. I'm not afraid of God. Well, should be. It is, it is God who is, we've talked about in the Psalms and all throughout the Scripture, that is creator of the world, but is also the judge. Now, he's also the same one, though, who loves us and, and adopts us as his children and tells us in his word that we know we are his children because he corrects us and that everyone that he loves, he corrects. So we thank God for those things. We thank God for correction because it shows us, one, that we belong to him, And two, it also shows us his kindness that he does not deal with us so harshly, but he deals with us in a correcting, merciful, and loving way as only a good father could. 
but the author of Ecclesiastes to fear God and to keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. The whole, everything boils down to this. He says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. If you want a reason to fear the Lord, may it start with the knowledge and knowing that God sees your wicked little heart, every little lie you tell, every little time you try to justify your sin and do justify your sin, every intention of your heart, even if you think it's good, but it's really not, God sees that and it will come out. What is done in the dark will come to the light. And God, there is no secret thing that you can hide from God and surprise him with. He sees and knows. You see, the Bible shows that the foundation of our faith and walk and knowing God is found in a holy fear of the holy God. And I would say this tonight, that if your Christian walk is not founded upon this, then, then there, is, there is an issue here. There is an issue here because if you are not one actually repentant of your sin and afraid, fearful of the God who will judge that sin, whether it's secretive or open, then you have a rebellion problem and you also have ultimately a view of God that is totally incorrect. To, to fear God means that you have a proper view of Him. And to have a proper fear of Him means that you have a proper view of Him. But far too many Christians today don't have either one. We have an improper view of God and I believe that that's perhaps the real big reason why we do sin. I sin because I think I can get away with it because I think God is so big that He's not worried about my little sin. Or I sin or I go against him because I know that God is good, so therefore there will be no judgment or there will be no correction. But rather the opposite is true. There will be correction for it. And so we try to justify these things, but ultimately we sin because we are not fearing the Lord as we should, because we're not viewing the Lord as we should, and we're not viewing ourselves as we should. We're not viewing our sin as we should. Everything truly is about perspective. And it's not about how we view sin. It's not about how we view God but rather how we obey what God tells us about himself and about sin and about ourselves. We should view God the way in which he tells us to. We should view our sin in the way in which God tells us to. We should view ourselves and we should view Christ in the way in which he tells us to. It's not about how we feel or what we think. It's what God has already said. That's what we conform to. Now, the fear of the Lord. The phrase, the fear of the Lord here, as one puts it, there's a reverential fear of the Lord is the prerequisite of knowledge. This term can describe dread in Deuteronomy 1.9, being terrified in Jonah 1.10, standing in awe, 1 Kings chapter 3, or having reverence, Leviticus 19, with the Lord as the object. Fear captures both aspects of shrinking back in fear and drawing close in awe. Now that is a wonderful, beautiful mystery of God. It is paradoxical in the sense, and what that $3 word means is this, that God says in his fear and who he is that I am drawn to him because of his goodness, but also because of who he is, I also tremble. I, there is this sort of, I, I'm a, a little nervous to approach, and, and kind of to give you back that illustration from earlier before, it's, it's I, I love my dad, so I can, of course, go to him. <laughs> but there is also this sense of, oh boy. And I believe that, unfortunately, the longer that we are saved, sometimes we can either, one, get, uh, get so wrapped up that we are so afraid of God anytime we sin that we won't go back to Him or won't return to Him, or we lose 
who God is because we've walked with him for so long. We get accustomed. Well, God's always good, and yes, he is, but God also will not just let us get by with our sin. And see, we have to understand God's holiness at the key and at the very root of his divine nature and glory, all of who he is. I want us to understand that or understanding or experiencing who God is makes us shrink back, if you will, in a fear of knowing that who we are is unholy and that we are in the presence of the Holy One. Turn with me real quick. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at this for just a brief moment. Isaiah chapter 6 here is one of my favorite portions of Scripture to turn to when I need a humble reminder of who God is and who I am, as well as for the pastoral role, uh, looking to see that as a mouthpiece, as a prophet, if you will, for the Lord, and, and to declare what God says, I first must have an experience, not an emotional experience, rather, but an experience with who He is, to, to know His presence, to experience His power, which certainly will bring about an emotional response to God. But here, Isaiah chapter 6, it says, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. That in and of itself is, is a sermon. The king dies, there's no one on the throne, there's uncertainty, there, there's no one ruling, there, there is a, a terrible unrest or potential for it. But Isaiah looks and he says, that same year that Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. And he's not just sitting upon uh, an earthly throne, he's sitting upon the throne of heaven, meaning he's ruling over all things. If there's anything that can bring Isaiah comfort, especially after Uzziah dies, it is that God is sitting on a throne and remains upon his throne forever. And that it's high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Now this is imagining this heavenly creature that is covering eyes, covering feet, and hovering around the throne of God. And it says, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now we just discussed and talked about how the train filled the temple dealing with the idea of His, his kingly robe. And then we see that the whole earth is full of his glory, all of creation is full of his glory. It says, And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Smoke here, it reminds us all throughout the Old Testament, is that there is this Shekinah cloud of, of glory. That is, it is the divine and very real presence of God and all of his holiness and all of his attributes and all of his power and all of his authority. That's what would go before the children of Israel. That's what as well descend upon the tabernacle um, of, of the people as they worshiped and as the sacrifices were made. And then here he says, he sees it in the heavenly temple, it says the house is filled with smoke. Then said, I, woe is me. Right? Isaiah doesn't say, oh, wow, look how holy God is. Let me go and, and, and see if I can uh, sit on his lap or, or give him a high five. No, he says, woe is me. Now, Isaiah is his prophet. Isaiah's supposed to be the man. I mean, Isaiah's a good guy here. Isaiah's a believer. Isaiah knows this God, but yet he says, woe is me. He says, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, lo, this hath touched thy lips, thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is purged. And of course, he goes on to say, here I am, send me. And God gives him this 
a divine uh, uh, touch to tell him, here's what you're going to say to these people, but they're not going to hear you and all these things. But, but he's absolutely undone and overwhelmed by the holiness of God. And if anyone in a moment has a fear of God in that moment, it's, it's Isaiah. Matter of fact, anytime we find someone in the Bible who has a real deal encounter with God, there is a holy fear of who he is. I want to give you then another example of how God gives this fear, but as well, this fear is not one of let me run away and flee, but rather let me bask in this so that I might know God more, so that I might be able to have this understanding and this paradox of understanding the fear of the Lord that makes my flesh want to draw back, but makes my spirit want to come near. Our flesh would want to certainly run from God. It would be towering. Our flesh is sinful. Our flesh doesn't want to be in the presence of holiness. And this is why our flesh must be transformed, must be changed. That's why in the moment of the twinkling of an eye, it will be changed just like that forever to be glorified. Our corruption or corruptible must put on incorruption or incorruptible. And so our spirit longs and is drawn to God in His holiness, but our flesh shrinks back in fear. Now, uh, over in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. This is the account of the burning bush where understanding, experiencing who God is makes us as well draw close, but understand to have this fear of, of who He is. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. This mountain would, play, would have a very critical place in the life of Moses all throughout his life. But he says in verse 2, When the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, but put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherewith thou standest is holy ground. We find that immediately Moses goes from, yeah, I've never seen a bush that looks like that before. I've never seen a bush that's on fire, but yet not consumed before. What in the world's going on over here? To being told, Moses, Moses, and he goes, uh, he, here I am, here am I. He says, don't, don't come no closer with them shoes on, Moses. Not because God doesn't like sandals, but because it was holy crowned. Because it was a holy place, because the absolute presence of God was there, because what God is about to do there is to give to Moses this divine decree to tell him, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it says, and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God in verse number 6. We, when we read chapter 3 and we preach chapter 3, we preach about, oh, bless God, the backside of the desert and all that stuff. And we talk about that. There's some great preaching and some good truths in there, but we forget about this little part. He looks at that bush and he's curious at first. We go from curiousness to, oh, this is a holy place. Let me take off my shoes as God just told me to. And then now he hears I am thy God and the God of your father and of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What that means and what you and I don't grasp 
in that Jewish mindset is he goes, this is the God of the covenant. This is the God of redemption, the God of creation, the one true God. This is the God who has promised a deliverance of his people. This is the God who has promised a redeemer, a Messiah to come. He's talking to me. And there ain't nobody else on this mountain except him and me. And he says that then he hides his face. Now, what did we just read back in Isaiah 6? Even the cherubims, angels, angelic beings, what were they doing? They're taking two wings and they're floating around, hovering. I don't know if they look like this, but this is the only way I can get it to look, all right? I'm a man of million talents, but I don't know how the angels really look this way, okay? It's what I got. They're floating here, and then with two, what were they doing? Covering their feet, and with the other two, covering their face. Now, what is Moses called to do here in chapter 3? First, God says, take off your shoes, because it's holy ground. And then he says, cover, he doesn't even tell him cover his face. Moses' natural response is, cover my face. Like a little child who is afraid of uh, something on TV, when a cartoon has a, a little monster on it, jumps out, rah, it seems so childlike, but yet there is this understanding that there is that fear. Moses isn't going to cover his face if he's not afraid. A little kid isn't going to cover his face at a cartoon if he's not afraid. So there is a natural fear that must be had, even for the greatest men of God there is. If Moses and Isaiah, who experienced far more of an overwhelming presence of God than you and I have probably ever had in a church service or even by ourselves, and the way in which they were used, if they have a fear of the Lord, what does that say we should have? A fear of the Lord. Now the idea here, as uh, Ross points out, he says, such fear is not a trembling dread that paralyzes action, but neither is it a polite reverence. There are some who dishonor the Lord by saying phrases like the man upstairs. I do believe that's a dishonor, to be honest with you. I can't give you a chapter and verse for it, but I can tell you never in the Bible do we find the man upstairs. We find the God of covenant, the God of mercy, the God of creation, the one true God, the holy God, the Jehovah God, the great I am, the Alpha, the Omega. None of those things are ever polite enough just to say, oh, you know, the man upstairs, he'll sort it out. He's not the man upstairs. He's the God of creation, the God of redemption. He is holy and just and good in all that he is, and all that he does. So a true fear of the Lord does not paralyze us, but rather it does not allow us to go up and to call God whatever we so choose, or to use his name flippantly. There's a reason why the Jews even today have such a fear, and many others, mind you, have such a fear of even saying his name. Or they'll put a dash where the rest of his name goes. They'll put a G, and they'll put a dash. Or they'll put a J, and put a dash. Because they don't even want to say the name. You and I, though, must find this balance of being, understanding that we should certainly say the name of the Lord. We're to bless His name. His name is important. It's who He is. It's how we identify Him. We should not be afraid to say His name, but rather we should be careful how we do say His name. And that's not just in curse words, but rather it's even the, the idea, too. I've heard some, some, some pray very prayers that make me go, I, I don't know if I'm going that far. Now, the Bible says we're adopted by Him. He becomes our Father. And we can cry, Abba, Father. And there are some who go, well, that just means I can call him Daddy God. To me, it's, it's pushing a little bit. It really is. Uh, there are some who, who do and some who very feel very much that that's a, a biblical thing to do. And for me, I, I'd much rather go by what he's called 
in the Scripture. I'd rather be one who'd be say, hey, you sure are pretty conservative with the name of God. Yep. <laughs> and I should probably be more conservative with it too. And so we've got to understand these things. This is the same God that we're going to stand before one day. This is the same God who not only made everything, but who's going to judge all things and make all things new. All right? He continues on. But what is the fear of the Lord? It is the, that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. As it goes back to what we had talked about earlier, it is understanding who God is and then obeying him. You will not obey him unless you fear him. You will not fear him unless you know him. We see how this all comes together. You can't just take one thing and say, oh, I fear God. Well, that also means you obey him and that you know him. And you cannot just say, I know God, without, truly know God, without obeying and fearing him. We see how this goes, all right? You cannot have one without the other. Uh, Guzik writes, this, this fear of the Lord is not a cowering, begging fear. It is the proper reverence that the creature owes to the creator and that the redeemed owes to the redeemer. It is the proper respect and honor of God. The same as the scriptures tell us, dealing with that he is the potter, that we are the clay, and the scripture tells us, what can that which is formed say to that which forms it? How have you made me thus? Meaning, if we would put it, how can you and I look to God and say, how come you made me this way? How come things are the way they are? You must not be that good if you allow these things or, or whatever. And there are plenty of people who do such. But what can we say to this God? Instead, what we can do, and the only real response to knowing God is to know Him, means to fear Him, and to fear Him means to obey Him. Not that we obey Him because I'm only afraid of Him, but rather because we have this holy, reverential, and understanding of loving relationship that He is our Father, and that He both loves us and corrects us, and He corrects us because He loves us, and that we obey Him not out of obligation, but out of love for Him. And the only reason why we love Him is because He had first loved us. Think about this. Who loves first in this relationship? Uh, a newborn baby or the daddy? The daddy. That baby don't know nothing yet. That baby just wants food. That baby wants food, someone to burp it and, and take care of it, keep it alive. The baby don't know yet. The baby don't know love. But that dad looks and holds the baby. Oh, love. Same with the mom, too. But I'm dealing with the illustration here, okay? That dad loves. So with us spiritually, who loves first? God loves first. The Bible tells us that. And that we would not love him unless he had first loved us. And the only reason why we know what love is, let alone to know the love of God, is because he has loved us and he's shown us his love by giving us his own son, that he would die for us and would be raised to life for us so that we would be able to be adopted through his precious blood into the family of God, to be joint heirs with that same Christ, that same promised Messiah who bled and died for our sins. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, the phrase itself, ultimately expresses reverential submission to the Lord's will and thus characterizes a true worshiper. A true worshiper knows God and fears God and obeys God. The one who knows God, fears God, and obeys God is going to be one who worships God because what worship truly is is not just singing songs or even raising the hand, which those are great things. But worship comes from a heart that knows God, that fears God, and obeys God. Worship is the proper response to those three things. Worship is the outcome and the outflow. And, and mind you this, everything that we do in our life, in our Christian life, should be the outflow of knowing God, fearing God, and obeying God. 
and it comes out as a life that is a worshipful life. Not just inside the walls, but it's worshipful when you witness. It's worshipful when you do a good job at work because you're supposed to do a good job at work. It's worshipful when you have good relationships and you love one another and you help one another and you do those things. But the reason why you do those things is because the inward is taken care of first, the knowing God and fearing God and obeying God. And it brings about a, a Christian life that brings worship or honor and glory to God. That's our goal. So the goal of the fear of the Lord is ultimately, it certainly brings us good by giving us wisdom and knowledge and all these things. But it ultimately brings God glory. To fear him is to know him. To fear him is to obey him. To fear him is to worship him. To fear him is to glorify him. He then says the contrast. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Could certainly probably be added to a degree that fools despise wisdom and instruction and fools always have the right answer. (laughs) Fools never need the instruction of the wisdom because they already know. They're never wrong in their own eyes. They're always right. Everything's never their fault. They, they just know it. They got it. And they'll be the first ones to give this sort of humbleness. <laughs> All right? It's a false humility. And it's a false humility because they've never captured what it means to truly fear the Lord. But they should start trembling now because one day if their heart is not right, if they do not get rid of that issue of their heart, that false humility, that, that false knowledge of God, they're going to stand before that God and they will do more than tremble. They, they will weep. And I believe that we'll weep with them. And even weep for them. And so I would pray that we would all do a, a heart check here to make sure that we are one, not puffed up, thinking that, oh, because I fear God and obey God, then I must know God and be, be all that. I must have arrived. But let us also check to make sure that we're not fools that despise wisdom and instruction. See, fools are fools because they don't fear God as they should. Romans chapter 3, verse 18 tells us, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That comes in a whole long line treatise that Paul is giving in chapter 3, where chapter 1, he said, Gentiles, guilty before God, gross, awful, wicked sins. And then he turns in chapter 2 and says, oh, you Jewish reader, or or formerly Jewish reader who's reading this and goes, yeah, you tell them, Paul, Uh, you tell those wicked Gentiles, he says, you're guilty too. Because you've known the law and you've transgressed the law and you're just as wicked. You just haven't done those gross sins that you claim that they do. But your sins are just as gross. They're just inward that no one knows about. And then he comes to chapter 3 and he says, Hey, in case you're not Jew or Gentile, which he says you all are, he says, guess what? You're all guilty. Every one of you. And he says, you're all gone out of the way. There's none profitable. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh their God. And then he says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And I would say... The answer as to how do we get to the place that we are in as a society today or in our homes today is because the fear of God is not before our eyes. We make laws and decisions based on fear of man, but not fear of God. And we should certainly fear the Lord. Those who make laws and those who promote the agendas of our day and the especially, I can't even imagine promoting the destruction of an innocent life inside of a mother's womb, which is still called murder, by the way. Absolutely. There's no other way to put it. And I, I would want to let you know this, too. This is a side note, all right? This is for free, okay? Those folks in Washington who say that they are 
part of the pro-life movement and they can gather umbrella of everyone from Mormons, Catholics, and, and evangelicals together. Um, they don't like the phrase murder. They say it's just too harsh. It's, it's, we can't really say that. Uh, yeah, we can. As a matter of fact, I can tell you that there's two murders taking place. There's two, there's two murders. There's the, the one who's doing the actual action, and there's the one who's willing to let that action take place. The great news for every murderer, every liar, every fornicator, every idolater is that there is a God in heaven who, if we would but fear and run to him, he would save us, and forgive us, and cleanse us. I want you to know that those who commit such atrocities are not unforgivable. If anything, they are the ones that our hearts should absolutely break for and weep for and pray for. That they would have a fear of God and that their hearts and lives would change. To think This is why murder, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb, is so serious before God. Because if I kill somebody, murder somebody rather, I do so because I don't fear them and I don't fear God. We must be so incredibly careful. The reason why our society has gone in the way that it is, is we've lost this. And so now we have a society that most of us would call foolish or fools. Why? Because they do despise wisdom and they do despise instruction and they despise those things because ultimately... To not fear the Lord is to despise the Lord. Some would say, oh, don't take it that far, but it's true. It's absolutely true. The same way those who would say, don't call abortion murder, don't take it that far, we must take it this far. To not fear God means that we are against God. It means that we don't, not only that we don't believe Him, but that because we don't believe Him, therefore we don't think He is God or should be God or should tell us what to do or that he should go as far as to give us these commands. You would say, well, no one ever says that. No, but they say it with their hearts that rebel against God's word. Adam didn't say, you know what? I I sure do hate God, but disobedience does it. Your sin and your disobedience says, I don't believe God in this moment. Even as a believer, the reason why I sin one, because I want to. One, because, two, because it's fun. Three, because I've got lustful flesh. And four, because in that moment of my sin, I think I know better or can do better than what God has said. Now, we don't like that, but it's absolutely, it, it comes on down to it. This is why sin, regardless of what it is, is absolutely grotesque. It's absolutely wicked. And that's why it should turn us to a fear of the Lord. And then we will have wisdom. We will have instruction. We will have knowledge. It's the beginning of a fruitful life. It's the beginning of a, of a life worth living. It's the beginning and the foundation of a Christian walk. It's the beginning and foundation of a, of a walk in your life that brings glory and honor to God. Now, verses 8 and 9, he then gives some wisdom instruction to the reader. Now, all throughout the book of Proverbs, there's going to be several times where he's going to say the phrase, my son. The idea, one, could be that Solomon is writing to a son who's unnamed or writing to his children. Or as well, though, it is that of wisdom writing to his children. Hey, obey, listen, get a hold of this, and your life will be so much better. And we better, as we talked about last week, get it while we're young. He says, my son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. To hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother means that the son here is instructed to listen, to learn, and to live out the wise counsel of his parents. But this means on the other side of that coin that it is the parent's role 
to teach and disciple their children. I remember preaching a youth Sunday as an associate pastor slash youth pastor slash whatever you wanted to call me and telling everybody, tomorrow, if you had any sense, you would get rid of me. <laughs> Which didn't make much sense because we, well, we had the parsonage. That's, uh, it made no sense at all looking back. Glad they didn't do it at the time. But the reason why is because it's not the role of the youth pastor to disciple children. It's not the role of the children's pastor to disciple children. The reason why we make those roles in churches is because parents don't disciple children. You say, well, I ain't got no time. You got, you got time. We've got time to be on phones, and we've got time for extracurriculars. We've got time to take our kids to ball practice or this practice or do, or do this, that, and other. We've got time to disciple our kids. matter of fact, discipleship isn't a one-block period where we say, hey, for one hour today, I'm going to disciple you. Y'all can come on over here, boy. Let me teach you about stuff. Discipleship is all day Every day. As the disciples walk with the Lord, so we walk with the Lord. So we teach our children and grandchildren to be discipled and what that means. You would say, well, they're being discipled because I bring them to church. I'm afraid that don't do it. I'm afraid that if one day if they stand before God and all that they've got to show for it is a colored picture of Noah's Ark, it's not going to stand up. So what do we do here? We've got to understand as well that they are being discipled. Your public school system is not teaching your children. It is not teaching them how to learn. It's discipling them. I know that most of us are products of public school. I'm product of public school, right? And I are smart. <laughs> Got my reading, writing, arithmetic, and all that stuff. But guess what? Today's generation, and to be honest, for many generations, they're being discipled by communists, being discipled by cultural Marxists. They're being discipled by people who don't love God or trust God or want God. They are being discipled eight hours a day by people who have no wisdom or instruction or fear of God. Now, I thank God for our teachers, but their hands are tied. This goes above our teachers. This goes to those who we vote in office to be in charge of public school system. This goes into um, what we allow to be promoted as the whole statewide. Here's what they're going to learn. And they don't learn to learn. They're being discipled. They're being discipled by Facebook and TikTok and Twitter and Instagram. Your children and grandchildren are spending more time on those phones and tablets. I know I sound like an old fogey right now, but I want you to know it's true. The average teen and younger spends more time on their phone than they will with mom and dad at a dinner table. Far more. They'll spend eight hours a day in school. And the average kid is spending four or five hours a day on these social media platforms. It ain't good for them. If you don't believe that and you don't want to take that one serious, how about this? Your young boys and even your young girls, the average age of being introduced and addicted to pornography is 11 years old, minimum. 11. If we don't see the issue here, the issue it's right there, the fear of the Lord. And until moms and dads get a hold of the fear of the Lord, our children are going to continue to be discipled by everybody else except for who they should be discipled by. He says, My son, hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. Parents, disciple kids. Kids, you need your parents. You need godly wisdom. Parents, this is why you need the local church. 
Because we want to put tools and resources and, and truly a village around you to support you and to pray for you and to pray over your kids and to teach them things that maybe you're struggling with or that uh, you don't know how to teach or how to broach a subject. That's why we're here. We're, we're here to do these things together. And furthermore, as Sorensen writes, the training and rules of godly parents will be as a fine jewelry to a young person. That is, paying heed to parental advice will be that which brings valuable and beautiful adornment to one's life. He says in verse 9, They shall be an ornament of grace under thy head and chains about thy neck. It's the idea of, of a crown and of jewelry. It's, it's this idea that to understand and to be taught properly by our parental authorities, to be discipled in the Lord of them and nurture and admonition, right? We love our baby dedications, but about as far as we get as actually discipling our kids is the day of the baby dedication. After that, we leave it up to whoever and whatever, and we say, well, we got him dedicated. What happened? We didn't disciple. We didn't teach him what it means to fear the Lord. Therefore, they're growing up as fools. They don't know God. We wonder how it happened. Well, it's because we're the fools ourselves. But this also shows us, too, in verse 9, that there is a great reward in life to those who fear the Lord and obey this command given to us. Wisdom and wise living are both the goals and the rewards of the believer who obeys God. Tonight, it's a very simple truth as we get to this. It's a very simple truth that you and I have heard a million times over, but it's a simple truth that we must return to. Lord, help me to have an understanding of what it means to fear you. Help me to have a proper understanding of what it means to know you. Help me to have a proper understanding of what it means to obey you, to glorify you. And Lord, help us to teach our kids and our grandkids and those around us what it means to fear you. So once you know the reason why our kids are growing up to be 18 and leaving the church isn't because church was bad or, or this, that, and the other. It's because they don't fear God. One, we didn't teach them at home. Very rarely do they really get taught that in youth groups and Sunday schools and things, unfortunately. But as well, because they don't have it for themselves, they won't grow up and have a fear of God. They might know He's real. They might think He's real. Or, or they just say, well, that's for mom and dad. Or it's just their thing. We need to get to the place where it is personal and where it is practical. Because if you personally don't have a fear of the Lord, you will not practically live out a Christian walk or a Christian life. At least not as we're called to. And the world does not need us to just show them the love of God, but as well need to know the fear of the Lord that they one day will stand before Him. And you as well will stand before Him. Tonight, as we pray, may we search our hearts, may our hearts leave here tonight, not shrunk back or running away from God, not so flippant as we can talk about Him as we so choose and desire, but rather so that we can humbly bow before Him and say, Lord, You are holy and I'm not. You are good and I'm not. Help me to obey You Help me to know you. Help me to fear you. Help me to glorify you. Lord, so that I would be used of you, that I might have wisdom. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we are to live wise lives and to have our children grow up to be young and wise, it's going to be fear of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the truths found in your word. Help us, God, to take these truths seriously, to understand you, to know you, to desire you, to seek you in all things. That God, that our lives be changed and built upon this knowledge of you, this fear of you, God, 
not that we would run from you, but Lord, that we rather we would understand you and, and humbly come before you, God, that you would use us or help us to have a burden for our kids, our grandkids, and, and for all those who truly are living as fools and don't know you, God. But Lord, help us to be mindful of ourselves to make sure that we don't fall into that same trap as well. God, the devil would certainly love to tell us that we don't need to fear you as much as we should according to Scripture, but God, that's what leads us to sin. It's what leads us to rebellion. It's what leads us to a, a whole world of, of hurt. God, help us tonight to take hold of this wisdom that you've given to us and to live it out wisely, practically, and purposefully as we go about our day this week. Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you for this time. Watch over us and God direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys, and I hope you all